Good evening and welcome. Uh, welcome to the Princeton Public Lecture Series. My name is Sam Wong. As chair of the Public Lectures Committee, it's my honor to welcome you to hear Cass Sunstein's lecture tonight. Uh, as most of you, I think, know, the Public Lecture Series at Princeton consists of lectures from all endeavors, nearly all endeavors of human thought, and, uh, and covers a, an amazingly diverse range of subjects. For those of you who are interested in this and other topics, you can read about all the speakers at our website, which is lectures.princeton.edu. Um, we have a great series planned for the year. I think some of you may have heard last week's speaker. I encourage you to read all about our other uh, lectures. Professor Sunstein's lecture tonight is part of the Walter Edge Lectures in Public and International Affairs. Edge was a self-made man who began his career as a printer's devil in Atlantic City. Among his many accomplishments subsequent to that, he served twice as governor of New Jersey and as United States Senator and ambassador to France. After his death, Edge's family assigned a bequest and later made additional gifts to support this lectureship which bears his name. The goal of the Edge Lectures is to bring to Princeton eminent statesmen from abroad as well as leaders in American public life. And to just give you an idea, past lecturers have included uh, diplomat and architect of the containment doctrine, George Kennan, the economist, John Kenneth Galbraith, and the writer and chemist, Isaac Asimov. Tonight, Professor Sunstein will be introduced by Danny Kahneman. Professor Kahneman is the Eugene Higgins Professor of Psychology here at Princeton University and Professor of Public Affairs at the Woodrow Wilson School. And he is a, an academic collaborator of Professor Sunstein. So I give you Professor Kahneman. It's actually very nice to be an academic because you get to meet people you get to meet very bright people, and then you get to meet exceptionally bright people, and you get to meet superlatively bright people. You get to meet very nice people, and extremely nice people, and superlatively nice people. And so tonight, it's my pleasure to introduce someone who is, I think, superlatively bright and superlatively nice. Uh, and that is Cass Sunstein. He's quite an extraordinary human being. You probably will get some sense of that. Uh, he's a star athlete, among other things. Plays squash, I think. Although you went to Harvard without an athletic scholarship, but you could have get, gotten one. He was on the board of editors of Harvard Lampoon. He currently has, in the year 2006, 16 articles published or in, under review. He has written two important books every year, written or edited, on average, since 2002, 10 books so far since 2002, on a very diverse range of topics that cover a great deal of human endeavor and a great deal of major policy problems. And what we're going to hear about tonight is another contribution, and I think a major one, to issues of policy that concern all of us. So it is truly a pleasure and an honor to introduce my friend and the Carl Llewellyn Distinguished Service Professor of Jurisprudence at the University of Chicago, Cass Sunstein.
Well, thank you so much. Uh, can you all hear me? Yes? No? This is a trick question because if you say no, probably you can. So, but you, yeah, there's one person who can't hear. But can, you, can the rest of you hear? Do you want me to talk louder? I'm going to tell you a story either about losing to Princeton and Squash or about John Wayne. And I'm torn about which. And one is humiliating and the other isn't. So I think I'll tell you the John Wayne story. Uh, based on uh, Professor Kahneman's reference to the Harvard Lampoon. When I was on the Harvard Lampoon, we had a man of the year, and it was John Wayne. And the reason he was the man of the year was his career was failing, and his manager asked us if we would make him man of the year. And we said, okay. And John Wayne came to dinner at the Lampoon, and he got very drunk and started dancing on the tables. But that wasn't what was remarkable. What was remarkable was that after the dancing, at 3 in the morning, I had gone home long before that, he started crying, John Wayne did. And he said, this was the best F, U, and then the word finished, evening of my life. And the tears were rolling down his, um, his face. And we thought this was an evidence of uh, quite a lot of alcohol he'd had. But 15 years later, there was an article in a magazine you read on the airplane. I think it was uh, Cosmopolitan. And I read it about John Wayne and his life. And it was very long. It was eight or nine pages. And on the seventh page, he was going over his life. And he was talking about the highlights. And he said, but the very best evening of my life was at the Harvard Lampoon. Okay. These remarks have two origins, uh, one academic, the other political. Uh, the academic origin is, as some of you know, for about 30 years, maybe a little more, the rational actor model, which is uh, reigning, uh, pun intended, at the University of Chicago, uh, the rational actor model has been under siege from people who emphasize that human beings sometimes are suffering from problems of self-control and sometimes are imperfectly rational. And this work in social science, in psychology and economics has uh, had a tremendous influence in social science and is just starting to have an influence in law and public policy. So the academic interest is from the standpoint of law and policy, what can we make of what we now know about what human beings are like? Uh, how can we use what we now know to make uh, human lives better? So that's the academic. The political is a, a little more uh, recent. The idea is that we've had a terrible set of fights in the last six or seven years from uh, libertarians who believe that laissez-faire is the right way to go and reliance on free markets exhausts, at least in the domestic domain, what government ought to be promoting. And others, planners, maybe this played a role in the early Clinton administration, who believe that government regulators often know better than markets do and can outperform them. Uh, the idea here is that this is a decreasingly productive and increasingly tiresome debate. It might even depend on some unhelpful premises. And maybe in the next generation, we can get beyond the laissez-faire versus planner debate uh, in a way that would actually be uh, productive. I have three epigraphs for you. 
The first is from a judge in New York when he was a law professor, and here's how it goes. A minimum of state intervention is always necessary. When a loss is left where it falls in an automobile accident, it is not because God so ordained it. Instead, it is because the government has granted the injurer an entitlement to be free of liability and will intervene to prevent the victim's friends, if they are stronger, from taking compensation from the injurer. I'm going to return to that uh, comment later. Uh, the second of my three epigraphs is from the President of the United States, and here's how it goes. I knew that when we laid out the idea of giving seniors choices, it would cause a little confusion for some. The reason why we left it, left it as it was was we felt it was necessary to provide choices. We want the system to meet the needs of the consumer. The more choices you have, the more likely it is that you'll be able to find a program that fits your specific needs. I did know that there would be some worries about asking people to choose from among 40 different plans, but I, but I thought it was worth it. Uh, the third epigraph is from yesterday's Newsweek, an article by Jane Quinn, who writes the economics column uh, for Newsweek, and she said, most of the 401k plans today assume that you have the time and interest to train as an investment ace, quick to pick the perfect mix of stocks and bonds. Fat chance, we cross our fingers, make a choice, and never want to look again. Okay, uh, the basic idea which will be spelled out in these remarks is uh, libertarian paternalism. This is an idea uh, hatched jointly with the economist Richard Thaler, um, uh, who is uh, a founder of behavioral approaches to economics. And uh, such confusions as there will be should not be attributed to Professor Thaler, um, but this is uh, emphatically joint work. Uh, by libertarian paternalism, uh, something quite simple is meant, which is an approach to government that um, preserves freedom of choice, but at the same time steers people's decisions in directions that make their lives go better. So with the Republican critics of government planning, we want to preserve choice and not to foreclose people's decisions if they see fit to do something unlike what the planner wants. Uh, we also want uh, paternalistically to steer people's decisions in ways that will uh, do well by them and not to uh, leave the system to so-called laissez-faire. Uh, to get a hold of libertarian paternalism, the program, let me just give two examples, both from the domain of savings. Uh, for a long time in the United States, when you sign up to work for a public or private employer, the way it works is that 0% of your pay goes to savings. If you want a certain amount of money to go into savings, you must enroll yourself. Uh, many employers and some employees, many years down the road, are frustrated to see that the number of people who enroll in the savings plans is very small, often 20% or fewer. The idea was that you could maybe knock up savings if you simply change the default rule so that people were automatically enrolled in a savings plan. So all over the United States, workplaces are uh, automatically enrolling people in savings, a certain percent of their salary goes to savings, and they can opt out if they see fit. This is a libertarian program in the sense that it preserves freedom of choice, but it is emphatically paternalistic in the sense that it tries to steer people's allocations in ways that will uh, be helpful to them. 
A second idea from the domain of savings is uh, failures, and that is uh, something called the Save More Tomorrow Plan. The idea, the behavioral idea, is people don't like very much losing some of what they now have. People often fight like tigers to maintain the resources and opportunities that they now enjoy. But they don't mind so much giving up gains that will come in the future. They don't fight so hard for them. The Save More Tomorrow plan says very simply that a certain percentage of your future wage increases will, if you wish, go to savings. You could save up for a Save More Tomorrow plan, and in fact, people have all over the United States, and it's produced tremendous increases in saving rates. I confess that the University of Chicago has finally uh, distributed a Save More Tomorrow plan. It was too confusing for me, so I uh, threw it out even though I would have benefited, I'm sure. You could easily combine the Save More Tomorrow plan with automatic enrollment by automatically enrolling people in the Save More Tomorrow plan. Both of these programs are choice-preserving. One of them switches the default rule. The other takes advantage of the fact that people don't mind giving up future gains, though they hate uh, losing what they now have. Uh, the idea behind them is that they are welfare-promoting. And I don't want to say a whole lot about how to give content to the notion of, of welfare. The libertarian paternalist program could be adopted with a sectarian notion of what welfare includes with one that can be widely shared by lots of people. For starters, let's just understand it to mean promoting the welfare of the people who are subject to the program as they themselves see it. So a, subject, a subjective conception of welfare not needing to be corrected by reference to their own confusion or misunderstanding once they have the facts. All right, uh, these programs are libertarian paternalist and the basic claim for them uh, operates against two assumptions that I want to identify and challenge to get the program off the ground. The first assumption is that people's choices uh, typically or always or almost always promote their own welfare. We now know enough to know in multiple domains people's choices don't, preserve, don't promote their welfare. Precautions against natural disasters are, disasters are an obvious example where people often take precautions or not, depending on whether a bad event has recently come to mind. So with respect to earthquakes and hurricanes and other hardships that people face, whether they are insured or protected against them often depends on whether there's an easily available incident that they can think of. If there hasn't been, then they typically uh, underinsure and, and take too few precautions. This is a little like the state of the United States on September 10, 2001, when many experts said there should be more precautions against uh, the risk of terrorism in airplanes. There wasn't an available incident, so the citizens and the government didn't take precautions. The absence of adequate precautionary measures is a good example of how people's choices sometimes don't make their lives go as well as they might. Uh, there are a couple of examples from the domain of savings behavior that uh, make this point more vivid. Uh, a substantial percentage of American workers have all of their savings tied up in company stock, even after Enron. Enron was a disaster for uh, workers whose life savings disintegrated because the workers at Enron had all their money in company stock. It turns out that American workers, both before and after the Enron fiasco, tend to believe that company stock is as valuable 
or as or more valuable than a diversified portfolio. Company stock is, on risk-adjusted basis, worth about half of a diversified portfolio, but workers don't know that, so they don't diversify. American workers often choose a port, do choose a portfolio, put the company stock illustration to one side, and they choose a portfolio once, which has an allocation. Thaler investigated whether people actually like the portfolios that they themselves produce, and it turns out that the picture is uh, uh, suggestive otherwise. If people are asked to evaluate their own portfolio, not knowing that it's, it is their own portfolio, and to compare it to the median portfolio or the average portfolio in the firm, they typically like the median portfolio better than they like their own, and they like theirs about as well as they like their, the average portfolio. These are just illustrations of circumstances in which people's own choices don't promote their own welfare by their own lights, at least once they have more information or once the self-control problem has been brought to their attention. So the first assumption that motivates libertarian paternalism is that sometimes people's choices aren't welfare-promoting. Okay, the second one is a little more complicated, and what I want to say about it is that the libertarian skepticism about paternalism often disregards the fact that paternalism, at least in a weak sense, is unavoidable. That in both the private and the public domains, there is a default rule in place that hasn't been chosen by you, that, has, that has often been chosen by the legal system, and to which you are frequently subject. So the idea is that the problem with the anti-paternalist program in its strongest form is it disregards the extent to which some sort of governmental intervention is unavoidable and always present. That's the quotation with which I began. Okay, I'm going to try to develop this by a series of examples. Let's take uh, a homely example, though uh, uh, one that pervades actually American life. Um, when you work in an American workplace, the default rule is that the employer can fire you for any reason or for no reason at all. The basic presumption when you come to the workforce is that you don't have any job security. Now, I bet you're thinking about various provisions like the anti-discrimination law that qualify this principle. And you're quite right, there are such qualifications. But they are narrow. The general rule is once you work in the United States, you can be fired for any reason or for no reason at all, which is to say that unless you get a contractual protection to the contrary, you are dischargeable at the whim or will of the employer. Now, in that case, the legal rule is allocating an entitlement, that is, to the employer, to fire you for any reason or for no reason at all. There's no, nothing in, in nature or in God's law that allocates rights those ways. And what can be said for job security can be said for vacation time, health care, anti-discrimination, every part of the package which employers and employees enter into. So the simple suggestion that the job security provision is designed to vindicate is that the legal system is pervasively setting out default rules which very much affect outcomes. I haven't explained yet how this affects outcomes, and let me give you some experimental examples. Um, here's one that the students in the room may find uh, intuitive. Uh, 
The University of Chicago Law School has a lot of students who thought a great deal about the allocation of uh, their work between salary and vacation time. Um, I did an experiment with them in which about 70 University of Chicago students were told, you are working in a state in which you get two weeks of automatic vacation time. Your employer is happy to give you two more weeks, but you have to give up some of your salary to get them. You're earning $120,000. How much would you give to get the two additional weeks of vacation? I ask a separate set of students, identical, otherwise identical, the following. You get two automatic weeks of vacation in your state. You also get two additional weeks of vacation, which you can waive if the employer is able to pay you enough to get you to waive. How much would you demand from the employer in order to waive your two weeks of vacation time? Now, there's a theorem by a colleague of mine, Ronald Coase, which suggests that the results in the two situations should be identical, that the default rule shouldn't make a difference. The only alteration in those cases is in one case, people get a default two extra weeks. In others, they don't get a default two extra weeks. University of Chicago students, having thought about this issue in their ordinary lives and in the experiment, asked double an amount to give up the vacation time once it originally was allocated to them as they are willing to pay to get the vacation if it isn't originally allocated. In fact, the, the doubling is in a, bit, a bit understates the outcome because I had to throw out a number of the questionnaires in which the law students said in response to how much would you have to be paid to give up your vacation time, there's no amount that the employer can pay me that will give up, make, make me give up my vacation time. Okay, so the idea is here, there's a simple switch in the default rule that's being set by the state. And the state can't avoid setting a default rule. It can allow waiver. But the default rule is having an important impact on the allocations. There was an, a natural experiment, not designed in a, as an experiment, in New Jersey, this state, and Philadelphia not long ago in which the question was, what are, is the allocation for your automobile insurance as between an ample right to sue and insurance premiums? One of the states gave you an ample right to sue, but you had to pay a little more as the default. You could contract around it. The other one gave you a less ample right to sue. You didn't have to pay so much, but you could buy back the right to sue. It turned out the default was very sticky in both states. And this would be hard to explain by reference to the systematically different preferences of Philadelphians, of Pennsylvanians, and New Jerseyans. The default rule is what stuck. I'm going to give you just one more example because it's very recent data. It involves plagiarism and the stickiness of the, the default uh, provision. Um, at the University of Chicago Law School, it happens that if you have plagiarized, you uh, get suspended for two years. Um, there was a recent discussion within the faculty whether that should be made more lenient so you get suspended for a semester. I don't know how it was resolved. We talked. The dean found our decision indeterminate. We probably stuck with the status quo. Okay. Uh, what I did with the University of Chicago law students, who fortunately didn't have a very clear sense of what the default, of what the penalty was, was to ask half of the room in a private questionnaire uh, to say to them, the, our policy is a two-year suspension. Should it be made more lenient for, to one semester? 
and the other half of the room was told, our policy is one semester suspension, should it be made more stringent to a two-year suspension? It turned out both parts of the room, answering anonymously, stuck with the default penalty. I wondered whether this was a University of Chicago effect, whether there was something funny going on here. So I did this just a few weeks ago at Yale, among Yale law students, telling half of them the University of Chicago policy was the lenient one, should it stick to the stringent, or it was the stringent one, should it shift to the lenient. And the Yale students behaved just like the University of Chicago students. They uh, st stuck with the, with the status quo policy. Okay, you might ask at this point, why is the default rule that the private or public institution sets so sticky? Uh, there are two obvious explanations. One is inertia, and the other is suggestion. It may be once you see that the ordinary policy is that employees don't have job security, that it just takes a little trouble to ask to change it, even if it's effectively costless. And inertia is a very powerful force. I say this with some suffering because when I first joined the University of Chicago faculty, I allocated half of my retirement money to TIA and half to CREF. I don't know what those letters mean or what the organizations are, but roughly it means that one is stocks and the other is cash. And I did that a fairly long time ago. My co-author is one of the world's experts on how you should really be putting it in stocks, not in cash. But I still haven't changed it because I'd have to make maybe a phone call or send an email, and that would take 45 seconds maybe. Um, so one possibility is inertia. Uh, the other possibility is suggestion. With respect to the plagiarism policy, and uh, maybe with respect to Pennsylvania and New Jersey also, if you see what the initial uh, allocation is, the initial policy is, you might think that someone sensible uh, devised it, and you shouldn't depart from it unless you have independent reason to. So it tends to be sticky. Okay, the argument thus far is that people have um, bounded rationality and self-control problems, which lead them to make bad choices some of the time, that default rules that affect people's decisions are inevitable, and the suggestion is that these def default rules are often sticky as well as inevitable. At this point, the libertarian paternalist wants to declare victory and go home, but there's an, an initial challenge, which is from people who say, um, well, there's something that hasn't been discussed yet, which is coerced choosing. You can force people, can't you, to choose whether to allocate any money to savings without defaulting in them into one or another plan. You might force people to choose what level of vacation they'll get rather than having a legal default rule. It maybe would have to be a product of bargain negotiation between the state and, between the state and the employee or the private employer and the employee. And there is an alternative to a, a good default rule, which is forced cho choosing. And the libertarians in the room will probably be drawn to that. Let's just notice two points about forced choosing that suggest it's not a panacea. The first is, forced choosing is, in a way, an oxymoron, isn't it? That many people have a meta-preference or second-order preference not to choose, and if you force them to choose, you're defying their own preferences with respect to whether they're going to be choosing or not. So the forced choosing idea is often something that defies people's choices about the option sets they prefer. If that conceptual objection isn't enough, let's just notice that sometimes forced choosing will be a burden 
which will force people to make cumbersome and unpleasant decisions, after which they'll end up worse off than they would have been with a happy default rule. To make that point, let me just give two uh, homely examples again. Uh, one is uh, from Sweden, which you may be surprised to hear actually privatized its social security program not long ago, doing some version of what President Bush urged he wanted to do in the United States. Sweden, famous social democracy, privatized social security. What it did was to uh, allow private entry in large numbers, so much so that there were about 460 possible plans. And the citizens of Sweden had books, not little books, books which had all the plans in their description. The Swedish government, not being stupid, had its experts work on a default plan that is one that the economists there thought was the most sensible one. But the Swedish government, being fans of course choices, discouraged people from going for the default plan, saying, we want you Swedes to make your choice and not just to rely on the program that we will default you into if you make no choice. Okay, it turns out there are three pretty striking things. First, uh, people went into internet stocks big time in 2000. And they lost on average about 40% of their money. Second, the default program way outperformed the outcome of individual choice. And third, even as the stock market was plummeting, people like me with respect to TIA-NCREF just stuck with their default allocation. So about 98% in one year, 99% in the other two just stuck with their default allocation and continued to lose lots of money. Now let's talk about President Bush's prescription drug plan. Uh, he likes choice, and he is my counterpoint to the Newsweek article saying that ordinary people get overwhelmed and confused. The problem with President Bush's plan, and the data is now in, is it overwhelmed a significant number of seniors who were quite confused about what they were supposed to do, so much so that a significant percentage of them, including the people who most need a good plan, either didn't choose any plan at all and didn't get into the program, they didn't enroll, or they chose a plan that by objective measures was not in their interest. It ended up, uh, it, it's ending up costing much more than they are getting compared to the other plans, or it doesn't get them what they need. The suggestion is with Sweden, as with prescription drugs, we would be much better off not with coerced choosing, but with a libertarian paternalist plan which defaults people into solutions that basically serves their interests. Okay, I've given a few examples. Let me extend just a little bit from these core cases to other cases in which it's unavoidable that a plan be chosen, a default rule be chosen, but in which the libertarian paternalists can make common cause maybe with let's call, people, let's call them people who are committed to libertarian benevolence in the sense of charitable giving, helping others, that doesn't force people to do that, but makes it easy for them to do that. Let's just give two examples. It would be easy, wouldn't it, to build on the Save More Tomorrow plan to have a Give More Tomorrow plan. Many Americans uh, would like to give more to charity than they actually do, given the self-control and inertia problems that infect their 
behavior. If people were asked, would you like to sign up for a Give More Tomorrow plan by which 1%, 2%, 3% of your future wage increases are given to charities that you designate or will designate one for you if you want that will be non-sectarian and an umbrella type? With a program like that, we could drive up charitable giving in the United States very dramatically without requiring another nickel in taxpayer dollars to be used to create incentives. If we wanted to, um, to make it even easier for people to give to charity, we could imagine employers, couldn't we, defaulting people automatically into a charitable giving plan, allowing them to opt out at the time they enter the, the workplace. We could imagine a combination of automatic enrollment in giving with automatic enrollment in a Give More Tomorrow plan. There's been a lot of talk by the President and others, this isn't a partisan issue, of ways to increase charitable giving in the United States, ways to promote, uh, create incentives, including tax incentives, to create uh, greater resources for people in need. A program of this kind would do it without, uh, without costing anything, just by a simple alteration of the default rule. Okay, the basic program of the libertarian paternalist is in place. In the reminder of these, r remainder of these remarks, I'm going to extend the program a little bit, uh, talk about uh, some design problems that libertarian paternalists face, and then talk about objections. And looking at your faces, I can see that the objections are foremost in your mind. Okay, uh, beyond the inevitable. We can imagine two kinds of people. Uh, libertarian paternalists with libertarian in, in italics. Maybe my University of Chicago colleagues. Libertarian paternalists with paternalists, uh, with the word paternalists in italics. Where one side is emphasizing preservation of choice, another side is emphasizing welfare. Okay, for the libertarian paternalists with paternalists italicized, it would make sense to go beyond the core cases sometimes to impose constraints on decisions that would move people away from the outcome that the planner is really content with. Let me give you an example from current law. Uh, you may know that if your employer asks you to waive your right to be free from race and sex discrimination, it's an invalid agreement. And it's a nice puzzle why people aren't allowed to waive these rights. Let's just take that practice for, as given. And notice that there's one anti-discrimination law that people are allowed to waive their rights under, and it's the age discrimination law. At time of retirement, your employer can ask you to waive your right to be free from age discrimination. But the waiver has to be knowing and voluntary. You have to have a right to consult a lawyer. You have to be treated with a ton of information. And you have to have a period of time in which you, you decide you didn't want to waive after all. This is not simple, inevitable libertarian paternalism because there's a procedural limit on the capacity to, to waive. In the aftermath of the uh, motorcycle accident involving Ben Roethlisberger, quarterback, Pittsburgh, are you football fans, yes? Do you want to hear about my humiliating loss to a Princeton player in squash? Are you that interested in sports? Okay. Um, uh, in the aftermath of that, there were some suggestions that people should have to wear motorcycles in all states. But the libertarian paternalist says, well, let them maybe wear their, go without the motorcycle if they have some sort of informational uh, campaign foisted on them 
which they go through like a driver's ed class before they make their ultimate decision. It's like the Age Discrimination Act case. So it's possible to impose a procedural limit by which the choice is uh, constrained, though ultimately the person can do as he or she wishes. You could imagine also a substantive limit. The Fair Labor Standards Act allows employers to have employees work for more than 40 hours a week, but you have to be paid time and a half. And there's actually an interesting uh, set of laws which impose substantive limits on how people can bargain their way to a solution that the government isn't excited about but isn't going to fence off. So the libertarian paternalist will be interested in these cases that go beyond the core. The libertarian paternalist will also be interested in ways to steer people's behavior in good directions that fight fire with fire in the sense that the planner tries to see if there's a self-control or bounded rationality problem that human beings face and wants to use people's own bounded rationality against the problem that they've run into. An obvious example is the domain of smoking, where smokers tend to be unrealistically optimistic about their health prospects. Smokers do have a good sense of the statistical risk that they're subject to. But they think that their own personal risk, as me, the smoker, is lower than that of the average non-smoker. So if you ask smokers statistics about risk, they often overstate the risk. If you ask them, what risk am I, smoker, subject to, they are pervasively optimistic. Are there ways to counteract that? Well, one way that appears to work is information campaigns that give people a very vivid sense of what it's like to be sick from a smoking-related disease. Those interventions, those vivid accounts, have pushed people away from their unrealistic optimism. Another example isn't quite in the domain of paternalism, but it can be easily adapted to that purpose. Minnesota a few years ago noticed that it was losing millions of dollars in revenue from tax cheating. So it thought, how are we going to drive up tax compliance without putting people in jail or spending a lot of resources on auditing and such? They tried four interventions. First, they told people, if you want to file on time easily, call this number. We're going to make it really simple for you. They also said, they threatened people. They said, if you don't do what you're supposed to do, we're going to go after you hard. They also said, taxes don't go to an abstraction called government. They go to good things, police, education, fire protection. And finally, they said, 92% of citizens in Minnesota do what they're supposed to do on their taxes. Only one of the four interventions had a statistically significant effect on tax compliance, and it was the fourth. Once people were told what most people do, and it's accurate, then they drove the compliance level up. It turns out people seem to operate in life with a heuristic, which is, I'll do what most people do, even with respect to behavior that maybe is morally problematic to them. And if they hear that the number of people doing X is very high, then the likelihood that they'll do X increases. Libertarian paternalists are interested in that kind of educational campaign, which enlists a heuristic in the interest of either socially or individually beneficial behavior. 
knowing, as the libertarian paternalist does, that when people don't pay their taxes, sometimes it's a self-control problem, and often it's a mistaken belief that other people aren't paying their taxes. And that maybe can be corrected through an astute inter intervention. Okay, in terms of design issues, uh, an obvious question is, how is the libertarian paternalist um, going to decide what to do? Okay, there are just two ideas I have here. The first is sometimes the well assessment of welfare will be pretty easy for people to make. In the context of savings behavior, it's pretty clear that Americans aren't saving enough for old age. And if that's so, then it's pretty clear the automatic enrollment plan and the Save More Tomorrow plan are beneficial. It may be that we can say the same thing in the charitable contribution area. If the welfare inquiry is too hard to handle, I have just one simple idea, which is which approach of the various possibilities produces the fewest opt-outs? Under an automatic enrollment plan, do you have fewer people opting out to take home all of their salary than if you have a plan by which people have to opt in? Which program do people sit with most? If people are sitting in overwhelming numbers with one default rule rather than another default rule, then without knowing much about welfare, we can be pretty confident that that system is the right one. Second design issue was how much choice to offer. That's the issue President Bush confronts in the prescription drug, con drug context. If the U.S. has Social Security privatization, that will be an issue there. In many domains, planners have to decide how many options to produce. I just have three ideas about that, which is the first, is, first thing you want to know is do people have informed preferences in which it's easy to map their preferences onto their choices? Is it like ice cream where this is the case? Or is it more like investment decisions when this takes a lot of work? The second thing that you want to inquire into is whether there's a lot of heterogeneity and diversity in the population. If there are, and that's what President Bush thinks is the case with respect to prescription drug plans, then there's a reason to have lots and lots of choices because one size fits all really doesn't work. In other contexts where there isn't a lot of diversity in the population, then you don't want to furnish a lot of choices in the menu. A third point is, is choice an, a value in itself? Do people experience it as such, or do they think it as a burden, as a burden, as a horror, and a horror? I have a little bit of this conflict, this is a good one for my co-author Thaler and me, because he thinks that the opportunity to choose wine on a long menu is really great and an intrinsic good, whereas for me that's a, a terrible nightmare. And, uh, and, and you can think of populations in which more people are like Thaler and more people are like me. I'm passing now the million point that cho choosing is an intrinsic good apart from whether people get uh, hedonic benefits to it. I'm going to get to that in, in, in a moment. But let's just notice that if people do experience choice as a burden and uh, a recipe for self-harm, then the argument for lots and lots of choices is weakened and people would be much better off with the default rule. Okay, uh, the uh, end of these remarks is just going to be about objections. And I'm going to talk about two objections that seem to me extremely tempting but uh, weak and three objections that are more powerful and we've just started to think about these. 
Okay, the first objection says that there's a terrible slippery slope argument. Once we accept libertarian paternalism, the government will soon be devising health care plans that are coercive, maybe like Senator Clinton's was when she was in the White House. The government will soon be banning smoking, not just um, having advertising about smoking. That, that choice will not be preserved anymore if the libertarian paternalist uh, is able to initiate the programs that are preferred. Okay, the, the response to this objection is the libertarian paternalist has, a, uh, has two problems with the slippery slope objection. First, there's no way of proceeding without a default rule, at least in the core cases with which I started. There's nothing in the state structure of the universe that says that 100% of salary goes to take-home pay and zero goes to savings. There's nothing in God's law that says that employees, as soon as they start working, can be subject to age discrimination unless they get an agreement the other way. If the employee doesn't have protection against age discrimination when the contract is silent, that's because law has allocated to the employer a right to age discriminate, a right which the employer can exercise with impunity even if the victim and his friends try to punish the employer for doing that. So the slippery slope argument ignores the, the inevitability of the default rule. The second point is that the slippery slope is made much less slippery, isn't it, by the libertarian nature of libertarian paternalism. This is a choice-preserving program, and so the slope by definition can't slip if the libertarian paternalist is, is in charge. That objection number one, uh, is, that's the problem with it. The second objection is that oughtn't we to distrust the planner? that it may be that the planner who's interested in knocking savings up has an economic interest in doing that, or the planner who believes that vacation plans should be, people should be defaulted into vacation, has an economic or other interest in promoting vacation. And it is true that the planner may be self-interested or confused. But here, too, the problem is that there's no way of doing without default rules so that so long as it's inevitable that private or public actors will be producing default rules, this is uh, unavoidable, the risk of bias or confusion on the part of planners. Okay, let me get to the three stronger objections. Objection number one says that some of these programs look manipulative and disrespectful. They look uneasily like subliminal advertising. It just is true that, informed by uh, Professor Kahneman and others, it's kind of child's play for an employer to alter employees' allocations just by switching the default rule. We know that inertia and suggestion will be very powerful. And so we might think that this operates in a kind of deceitful, manipulative, behind-the-back way that is disrespectful of the people who are supposedly being benefited. Okay, there are a couple different versions of this objection. Uh, the most interesting to me uh, invokes John Rawls's publicity proviso. And the publicity proviso basically says that uh, the government ought not to do something with respect to its citizens that it could not defend publicly. 
that it's disrespectful to impose on citizens something that, if disclosed, would be either unworkable or um, intolerable. Okay, I think the libertarian paternalist ought to, at this point, accept the Rawlsian objection and say the publicity principle or publicity proviso is sound, but ought also to say that none of the things suggested thus far runs afoul of it. To the extent that there is a problem of manipulation in some of these, then we do have an issue. Sensible objection number two says, in some domains, people have a right to governmental neutrality, which at least means that the government can't push people paternalistically, even in this relatively weak form of steering, can't push people in one or another direction. Suppose, for example, that a majority in the current Congress thought that people should be informed as they go to the voting booths that if they're going to vote for Democrats, they're voting for people who are uh, not interested in the well-being of the United States and who basically don't care about its security. That would fit with libertarian paternalism, wouldn't it? It would be choice-preserving. It would be not the core cases, but it would be, uh, it would be like the advertising cases. I think cases like these are fairly easily confined. They are ones in which the right in question is a right to neutrality, at least across a certain space. And when that right exists, then the steering is inadmissible. Okay, third and final objection is from, uh, I don't know what you call him. What do you call Edmund Burke? You don't call him a philosopher, do you? He was too kind of loose and moody for that. Uh, do you call him a social theorist? He really wasn't a theorist. He hated theory. Uh, but Bur let's, talk, let's not give him a name, just Burke. Uh, here's what Burke said with respect to the French Revolution. He said that the French revolutionaries are in the grip of a theory. And the theory having to do with the rights of man uh, is uh, unreliable compared to the practices that have built up over periods of time, because those practices embed the judgments of multiple people out of whom the tradition and the practice are constructed. So Burke's objection to the social engineer is that you're in the grip of an account of something, utilitarianism, rights, whatever. And the theory is a form of hubris, because it operates as a kind of bomb that blows up practices to which countless people are likely to have contributed. Okay, the Burkean objection to the libertarian paternalist says you are asking for alterations often in social practices, which we will recognize as social practices rather than nature. But the practices have a kind of authority just by virtue of their longevity. They are a product of many minds operating over extended periods. So the Burkean says, I think this is a deep objection to the libertarian paternalist, that what you see as a welfare-promoting alteration of the default rule, even in the core cases, is actually a hubristic change in a social practice which chances are has functioned very well for the people who are working under it. Okay, what the so libertarian paternalist says at this point is that we can't know whether the Burkean claim is right without investigating the context. It's too possible, isn't it, that in the context where the libertarian paternalist wants to work, the practice isn't a product of many independent minds working well to construct a tradition by which all benefit, 
But instead, it's possible that the tradition is a product of boundedly rational people, often engaging in imitative behavior, sometimes subject to inertia or the power of suggestion. If that's the case, then the Burkean claim is a cautionary note and no more than that. Okay, I am uh, done. The goal has been to describe and advocate libertarian paternalism. The core conceptual claim is that some kind of paternalism is inevitable whenever institutions set out default plans or options. And those default rules are, are all around us. When we don't see them, it's because they are so entrenched that they are invisible. Nonetheless, they're there. The empirical claim has been that in many domains, people's preferences are ill-formed and uh, labile. And so default rules and starting points matter a lot. The libertarian paternalist wants to steer people's judgments in directions which will make their lives go better. If the direct welfare inquiry is too hard to handle, the libertarian paternalist seeks to minimize the number of opt-outs. There's a hard question, a design question, which is how many options to provide. The claim is that this ought to turn uh, on the heterogeneity of the population, on whether cho choice is perceived as a good, and whether people's preferences are informed. Are there any possibilities here that can actually be uh, concretized? Well, I referred at the beginning, if you remember, it wasn't that long ago, to the Newsweek article by uh, Jane Quinn, who mentioned a law passed a little over a month ago, which is the Pension Protection Act. The, pretension protect, the Pension Protection Act has a key ingredient which had bipartisan support in this very contentious Congress. And the key ingredient removes disincentives to create automatic enrollment plans and creates strong incentives on the part of employers to create automatic enrollment plans. In the words of the Newsweek columnist, is this paternalistic? You bet. Libertarian paternalism, I suggest, is not an oxymoron. It also provides a foundation for rethinking many areas of private and public law. Eager for questions, comments, objections. This is a book which is just starting. Yes, ma'am. Most libertarians think that. Oh, great. So, so my libertarian boyfriend likes to tell me that the NIH is a superfluous government agency that should be canned. But I'm paid off of an NIH grant, which puts me in a sort of interesting position. So, how does? libertarian paternalism sort of fit those superfluous government agencies in? Well, I don't know that the libertarian paternalist has a whole lot to say about the superfluous, supposedly superfluous government agencies. If the NIH is improving people's choices or doing things that give people more information, that enriches the culture or some such, then the libertarian paternalist is hardly alarmed by the NIH. Um, and the libertarian paternalist tends to have consequentialist uh, inclinations. So if the NIH is doing good things for people, then 
that would be helpful. If it's wasting taxpayer money, not. If it's wasting taxpayer money, then we would want to see if we can design it to do better. You're, you're getting money, so. Um, <laughs> of all the reasons we have, and now there's a big literature saying that people are not rational in making many decisions. Now, the question is, you seem, though, to believe that instead the government will be rational. And, you know, we may have our opinions, but, for example, you could look at today's government and wonder whether, right, all decisions are rational. So I just wonder whether passing the ball to the government will actually really increase chances of uh, sort of better outcomes okay, ahead. Good. Right? Okay, there, there, okay the, the strong version of your argument, let's say, uh, the kind of uncompromising one, is... Uh, we know that individuals are boundedly rational. At least market arrangements have a kind of discipline and learning and decentralization, whereas uh, government mandates or even libertarian paternalist stuff um, has a more invasive quality, and the boundedly rational government can be more do more damage. So get, get rid of that. Um, the libertarian paternalist is painfully aware of the fact that government is boundedly rational, but thinks that the strong version of your objection uh, disregards the core claim, which is that governmental abstinence is not on the table in a market economy. So what the libertarian paternalist says is that the notion of getting government out and relying on markets uh, is a mystification. It depends on an assumption that property rights, contract rights, tort law, employment law can exist without government. It, many American eyes were opened when Russia, post-communism, tried to create a market economy. And the advice of some Americans, just go away government, was so ludicrously unhelpful because they needed an active, aggressive, and by the way, well-funded government to create the market's preconditions. You can't have contracts without a system of contract law. At least you can't have ones that market economies require. And what contract law is in large part is default rules that allocate entitlements. Now it's true that boundedly rational people from government are gonna be setting that out. But we can cry all we want, or cry out all we want, about the boundedly rational quality of government and we're not going to get government out of the picture. So none of this argument depends on a claim that the government is, is less boundedly rational than individuals. In some contexts, surely that's true. In some contexts, surely that's false. Government is pushed around often by special interests. The reason that this is libertarian paternalism rather than non-libertarian paternalism, as some behaviorally informed law types like, is aware of planner error. And libertarian paternalism is, is a backstop. Now, I think the weaker version which, of what you're saying, by weaker I just mean less, uh, uh, less uh, aggressive, not less correct. The weaker one, which seems to me more correct, is to say because of the risk of boundedly rational government, we should have libertarian paternalism where we can't but have it. And in the cases that go beyond the core cases, remember the substantive and procedural constraints and the information constraints, that we, we're too nervous about, that it will be exercised badly. Now, I think that's too abstract and theological to be correct. The, to make it work, we need to know a lot about context. 
for, for it to turn non-abstract and theological, it would be kind of a really utilitarian idea that even if government advertising campaigns sometimes work and sometimes are good, they're too apt to be ill-motivated. For every cigarette one, there's one that's against certain social groups or against certain acts. And the really utilitarian argument might be right. But that, that would be a more um, down-to-earth debate than the, than the other one. So the claim is, and maybe I should be emphasizing this even more than I have, is that the libertarian paternalist starting point is not just that people, including government, suffer from bounded rationality, but also that the uh, only alternative to uh, efforts to design sensible starting points is inept neglect or coincidence or stabs in the dark. Thank you. Do you feel a little like Oprah? <laughs> mm -hmm. Hmm. Um, all the examples that you gave of the libertarian a paternalistic approach uh, that I can recall moved the original uh, status quo position from a more libertarian end in the paternalistic direction. And so my question that I can recall. Uh, is that the only direction that libertarian paternalists want okay. to go in? And, and is there an example of something that's currently more paternalistic where the mechanism is, is used to make uh, it more libertarian, in the libertarian direction? Okay, great. Um, I will have been very unclear if it seems as if I've been suggesting we depart from a libertarian status quo in the favor of a more paternalistic program. If you think that, then either I've been obscure or I'm just wrong, and I prefer the second. But let me try to explain why not, none of these arguments is a claim that we should move from more libertarian to more paternalistic. And the reason is the original thing from which we're moving is every bit as paternalistic. If you have a situation in which employees have two weeks of vacation time but can buy two more weeks, that's not less paternalistic than one in which they have four weeks of vacation time, two of which they can sell. They are equally paternalistic in the sense that they are allocations of entitlements that affect preferences. Maybe a situation, okay, in the United States, you go into the workforce, you can be fired for any reason, for no reason at all. You could imagine in fact, some distinguished people have argued in favor of a system in which you go into the workplace, you can only be fired for a reason, a job-related reason, or the business is being scaled back, but not just because the employer doesn't want you there anymore. But that right to job security can be traded. It's not that the switch from the one to the other is a switch from more libertarian to more paternalistic. They are both, if they're to be worth anything, welfare-promoting interventions. And the question is, which is the more welfare-promoting one, where welfare is, is a placeholder for the preferred account? But there's, there's nothing less libertarian about the status quo than what the libertarian paternalist wants to work on. A system in which you get no right to be free from discrimination on the basis of X, unless you buy it, as unions sometimes do, is not less interventionist than one in which you get the right, but you can sell it. These are different allocations of the rights. And I think if that intuition seems confusing, it's because the allocation of rights that seems like non-intervention is so uh, customary 
that it seems natural, as if it isn't a legal imposition, but it sure is. Okay, but I can answer your question without making that, I hope, clarification, which is the libertarian paternalist sees many domains in which we have non-libertarian practices that should be moved in the direction of choice. So for motorcycle helmets, the libertarian paternalist doesn't want to mandate them. The libertarian paternalist wants to have less invasive rules. Now, the libertarian paternalist shouldn't be dogmatic, I don't think, in opposing non-libertarian paternalism. But but at least there's a presumption. So with respect to all sorts of things, including drug use and much risk-taking behavior, the libertarian paternalist doesn't like prohibitions and bans. So isn't moving from... Uh, pater- is, is moving from paternalism to libertarian paternalism. Well, uh, the libertarian paternalist knows that interests include not just safety, but all sorts of goods. So, okay, in Illinois, I think our mayor or governor is proposing a ban on certain foods in uh, school cafeterias. Um, Libertarian paternalists are very nervous about that, partly because they think that the Governor doesn't know very well, necessarily, and partly because the the food choices involve not just health, but good taste. So the libertarian paternalist doesn't like that very much. Um, I'm not sure if this is an answer to your question. Wherever there's a ban on choice, the libertarian paternalist will want to think, are there third-party effects, which would get us out of this discussion, and if the third-party effects are clear enough, then we'd want the regulation. Or the liber- this libertarian paternalist, I'll say, would be willing to accept non-libertarian paternalism in cases where the evidence is clear enough that the person is making a blunder, and a serious one. But you would really want that degree of clarity. Well, uh, I'm, uh, as you would probably guess, Cass, unsurprisingly confused about a core element of your presentation. And it has to do with what I take to be the claim that this is designed to solve a self-control problem. Uh, If that is true, then it leads me to wonder the extent to which there is a fundamental premise which affirms either the capacity of people in general for self-control, or what we often call self-government, or which in fact intends to call into question the general capacity for self-government. Okay. Um, uh, There are kind of little self-control problems, like just inertia about savings plans. And then there are maybe major self-control problems involving something like smoking or obesity. Um, And... Uh, I'm tempted to respond to your question a little like uh, John Rawls did in a footnote, which sadly he never published, which says, uh, we post a signpost, no deep thinking here, things are bad enough already. 
So I don't, I don't mean to say anything deep about uh, the human capacity for self-governance. I guess all I mean to say is that people on reflection agree that in some domains they, in fact, suffer from a self-control problem and they're right. So people say, uh, I wish I could sm stop smoking, but I have a self-control problem. Or people say, I wish I were saving more money for retirement, but I'm not. Or people like me say, I wish I had more stocks and less cash, but it would take 45 seconds. And so, yes, people have uh, capacities for overcoming their own self-control problems. And there's a market in overcoming self-control problems, which is why the libertarian paternalist is um, libertarian and not going to force people to overcome their self-control problems unless there's some very powerful demonstration. I was wondering how a libertarian paternalist would approach the question of abortion and uh, policy questions such as uh, informed consent, waiting periods, and uh, packets of information, that sort of thing. Okay. Um, you could imagine, couldn't you, uh, a libertarian paternalist saying, well, we have to figure out what the information that's being put to the mother is designed to do. Uh, one version. A lot of women, let's stipulate, who have abortions conclude after the fact that that was a mistake. That's a stipulation, not a claim. Another version, the fetus is an entity which has rights of one or another sort, at least rights not to be uh, thoughtlessly destroyed. Okay, if it's the second argument, then the libertarian paternalist has nothing to say except we'd have to figure out the position of the fetus. If it's the first argument, the libertarian paternalist's ears perk up, yes? If, if we stipulate that women make this choice and much of the time they regret it after the fact. And then the libertarian paternalist says, well, this is something that is very much worth considering, supposing the facts are as they are. Now, one thing that might be said um, that that is the one of the objections I said were, are good objections to libertarian paternalism, is you might not want, well, we have to, okay, what does it mean to say that a woman has a choice, to, has a right to choose abortion? It doesn't mean that it's inadequately descriptive to say that the state must abstain from the woman's abortion decision. It means also that the state is allocating an entitlement to the woman to have an abortion such that private and public interference with that choice will be punished through the use of public force. So that's like the first quotation I had. So then the question is whether that allocation is, can be justified, and the libertarian paternalist doesn't have much to say about that. We have to talk about the merits of that. But supposing that we think that the right to choose has that kind of defense, then it might have the following defense as well, which is that the government has to be neutral as between exercise of the right and non-exercise of the right. So it might be, on one view of what, how to understand the right to choose abortion, it's like the Republicans saying to the Democratic voters, you have to be steered in the Republican direction by learning how weak the Democrats are on security which would be bad because the right in question, that is the right to vote, has a, what I'm calling a requirement of neutrality built into it, as the abortion right might also. 
And so that, that's what, so in other words, the libertarian paternalist as such doesn't have a lot to say, except maybe that uh, steering is more justified if there's some sort of bounded rationality problem that's leading to a too high a number of abortions. Um, and maybe that's about it. I have a question about the label of your theory. And you began by acknowledging the um, paradoxical character and saying that it's not an oxymoron. Um, as I was, um, and I'm wondering about what the word libertarian is doing here, because as I heard, as I what I heard, I guess, is that libertarian is is about choice simply, and. I'm not sure if that captures the essence of libertarian, that just simply choice. And after I was thinking about the old Jack Benny joke, who must have been inspired by Hobbes at the time, when the robber comes and says, your money or your life. Well, that's a choice. But no one would say, well, that's a libertarian robber. And, and similarly, <laughs> right? And, and similarly, under tyrants, there are choices all the time that, that people make. Um, so I guess I'm wondering, you know, using the word libertarian really, you know, uh, is, is jarring, but I wonder if it's in fact um, the most accurate, if it shouldn't just be something like escapable paternalism or modifiable paternalism, which isn't nearly as catchy, um, but might be more honest. And isn't there something thicker about libertarianism that's not being captured here? Okay, good. Um, you can imagine a conception of libertarianism that says what? That it requires not just preservation of freedom of choice, but also non-interference in any way with people's ultimate decisions, such that an educational campaign from government that talks to people about the problems of smoking would be illicit, or um, a, a law that says if you're going to get divorced, you have to spend a week thinking about it before you do, that would be illicit. So this seems to me an intelligible conception of what libertarianism is that would be very hard to defend um, in a way that doesn't involve, some, I think, some sort of uh, fetishizing unsteered choices. And I don't know that libertarians could explain why that would be good. Um, but, but that's a coherent position, at least, the idea that government not only is banned from foreclosing choices, it also may not steer. Okay? Maybe libertarians think that. And that would rule out my non-core cases, the educational campaign, the procedural limits, the substantive limits. Yes, those would be ruled out. But that still leaves, I think, the libertarian with a terrible problem, which is the core cases in which some sort of allocation of rights by the public sector is unavoidable. So let's uh, identify as the mystification of libertarianism, which Hayek, the great critic of socialism and often the hero of libertarians, saw very early on. Hayek said, in no market system would a government do nothing. An intelligently designed market system needs an active and flexible government as much as any other kind. That's because Hayek was trained as a lawyer and he knew system of property and contract, which are the foundations for a libertarian system, involve allocations of rights and they steer. So I say 
that the libertarian who believes in freedom of contract and private property had better not take on the more ambitious conception, which is don't steer. Because so long as you set default rules, you'll be steering. I'm, yeah. Well, I'm still here. <laughs> Should we do should we do one more? Some some people might have to go somewhere. And so um, I, su- I suppose my, uh, my my most relevant question is does one not have the right to um, to uh, to avoid this help, this steering, or in some people's mind, perhaps condescending manipulation if taken too far. And this pertains particularly to the non-core cases in which it's not just a one way or the other, but various kinds of constraints that you alluded to, like educational constraints, information constraints, etc. And is there no way you could have a system whereby an individual could choose whether or not to be helped? For instance, even a non-choice scenario in which you have three options, like in healthcare, for instance, one, either do not make a choice so you're not being forced, two, pick a specific thing, or three, be recommended? Great. Okay, the second emphatically, yes, that you could imagine a system where people are told, do you want it to be defaulted? Do you want to choose? What? And that would be great. So uh, what if they don't want to answer that one, though? <laughs> but they don't. That's the, they don't. And they can just opt to have nothing to do with it. And then what happens if they don't? Well, then they're just defaulted, but they made the choice. Okay. Well, it's like leaving a ballot blank is the idea. It's a statement. That, uh, that's, that's, very, that's ingenious, and it seems very plausible that sometimes people are told, do you want to be defaulted, do you want to choose? And if they don't even bother with that, then they're defaulted. And the question is whether that isn't uh, a way of driving up transactions costs in a way that doesn't do any good for anybody. But you could imagine cases in which that would be a nice a nice solution. So I'm with you on that. What I didn't get, uh, I don't think, well, no, I got that. Yeah. Okay, you could imagine, uh, and this is a coherent position that says that we don't want to go beyond the non-core cases because we don't want any kind of steering. But uh, I think the core kind of power of the libertarian position is really about choice preservation. And the idea that it's always illicit to... um, well, it's not illicit for the private sector, is it, to provide procedural constraints on certain things. Why would it be always illicit for the public sector? That sounds a little like a theology. And for it to be vindicated, the theology which says that the government can't even inform people that smoking makes them sick or some such, the, the way to make sense of this, it would have to depend on some, I think, empirical judgments about the... Uh, bias and confusion that the, in the government and the wonderfulness of markets. Um, but to demonstrate that would take a lot of work, I think. I wonder if you see any particular reason not to have a combination of the default rule along with the, uh, the forced option idea. This is sort of um, related to that question, but what comes to mind automatically is sort of there are already forced options that we already do, such as what state we live in, for example, um, what kind of insurance we buy, or like what we register to vote as, what our party affiliation is. Um, So it strikes me that you wouldn't necessarily have a default, but maybe perhaps 
a number of defaults. Like, you know, if you choose to live in Ohio and you register as a Democrat and, you know, or whatever, you know, you do, you, that's your default rather than just having sort of national, you know, everybody just gets the same thing kind of thing. Do you have to see any reason why everyone having the same default would be better than sort of having sort of a more, using the forced options that we already have to sort of, you know, make it a little bit more specific or, uh, and people already feel like, you know, my party is looking out for me, so they probably will have my best interest at heart, and so, you know, this sort of thing. So, okay, the, you could imagine uh, people having more freedom to select what state they're voting in, is that what you're thinking? Either, either um, so let's say with the saving plan, uh, if you're registered as a Democrat, you know, the Democrats come up with some saving plan, you, that's the one that you default get. Since oh, you at least more theoretically would have it would a more raise the stakes of voting, so that sure, uh, sure, the, the party. Well, people seem fairly for. comfortable just sort of buying into the whole party system. Would increase education, I guess. Right, that's right. right. But it might have it might increase education too much. We want an optimal level of education. So, yeah. <laughs> I actually, the the more I think more pertinently, why not do it more on a state level rather than I mean, it certain sort of didn't get into that necessarily, but more on the state level rather than the national level. Sure, I mean, for some of those sorts of things, it would make sense. Oh like, well, the the libertarian paternalist doesn't is happier with state regulation than national regulation, thinking that that promotes flexibility and decentralization. And if the national government is going to do it, it had better be libertarian, unless the empirical showing. Of, is very strong, but notice the example with which I ended, which is the, is a national pension plan, which is choice preserving, almost certainly welfare promoting, right. and national. 